Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. This is High Tea with Grace, where we spill the tea on HIT. I'm thrilled to introduce you to Charlene Song Rigby. She is CEO of RareX. Thanks for joining us, Charlene. Hi, Grace. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for coming on. So tell us the path, personal, professional, that brought you to RareX. So I've spent my career building software solutions for the analysis of big data, and that's been both in the enterprise as well as for healthcare data. And so prior to joining RareX, just to um, tell you about my geek credentials, we I was at an organization where I was chief business officer, and we were developing developing artificial intelligence approaches to speed diagnostics of rare disease patients utilizing wow. genomics. And so at that time, I, my second child was, I think, eight or 10 weeks old when I joined that company. And um, pretty soon after that, she started missing milestones. And so, you know, she wasn't sitting up, she wasn't rolling over. And, you know, the, that kind of started us on this three-year journey to try to find an answer for what was happening with Juno. And after many tests, uh, we were able to get a diagnosis for her through a newer kind of genetic testing called whole exome sequencing. And this was ironic because uh, this is the type of technology that wow. to wow. analyze data from. So uh. it was, I, I think also I'm, I'm so grateful because I think that if I had not known about this technology, we would not have pushed so hard for it for my daughter. And, it, you know, at the time this was in in she was diagnosed in 2016. It was, you know, really it is becoming more and more accepted as standard of care and importantly, covered by insurance. But, you know, it was really considered experimental at that time. And so I, I do feel very fortunate, even though it took us three years. And so at that time, we there were about 200 kids in the world who had a an, an STXBP1 diagnosis, which is what my daughter has. And so we decided to start a foundation with five other families and really focused on advancing research, you know, when they're really 
wasn't very much research that had already started happening for STXBP1 and with the focus of really accelerating therapies. So you were asking me about how my journey has brought me to RareX. When we started working in advocacy for my daughter's disorder, there we were thinking about, you know, how do we collect data that is going to enable us to really accelerate understanding of this, you know, disorder, of this rare disorder. And I was talking with other advocacy groups that were kind of our brother and sister advocacy groups that had been started around the same time. And it was really interesting that we were all kind of doing things in a different way. And some of those things, some of those ways were bespoke. Some of them were, you know, on Google Docs, you know, and, and basically I kept thinking if I put my software hat on, you know, we would do this in a much more scalable way where we'd be able to, you know, uh, uh, utilize and optimize our resources and also build a lot of learnings into a system. And, you know, there's there, so I, started talking to the RareX team, Nicole Boyce, the founder, and the team last year and was so excited to find out that there was an organization already doing this. And so- Wow, bringing everybody together from the disparate sources. Thank you so much for sharing us uh, your personal story about Juno. We're thrilled that she was able to get the diagnosis that she so, so deserves and needs. And it's very exciting, the work that you're doing now to bring people together um, in the rare community. So what kind of organization then is RareX? Uh, What's your vision for it? So RareX is a dual organization. So uh, first, it's a healthcare technology nonprofit. And second of all, it's also a patient advocacy organization. And, And I'm bringing this up because it took me some time to get my arms around it before I joined because I came from the the commercial world. And why it's important that we have this dual focus is that we really, even though we are building technology and you know a, a a research platform, we really start from the perspective of what patients need to mm. accelerate therapies. And patients really kind of got gu- they guide us. They're really the, the you know kind of center and heart of what we do. So RareX has built a, a platform and a research program that enables patient communities to collect, structure, and share data to support acceleration of research and, of course, for therapy development. And we're doing this across rare diseases versus just in a single rare disease. You know, thinking about the point I was talking about before about how we can create scalable solutions and and really lessons that we can, you know, apply across the rare community. And one of the things that that is critical to our approach is that we believe that patients should own their data. And so facilitate Mm -hmm. patients being able to share their data in the way that they want their data used for research. We have an innovative consent and data sharing agreement so that they're separated um, so that patients can determine how they want their data to be shared, and they can actually update that over time. So that's been a really critical part of you know our model. And you know, so through this, you know, we we have a, um, an ability to collect very robust, critical patient level data that enables us to inform research, and 
we also are able to give patients this true seat at the table for research instead of, you know, those experiences um, where they sign up for a research program, give their data, and then have no idea what's happened to it, you know, after the fact. I've heard so many stories about that. People, patients sharing their data and sharing their insights, and then folks never telling them how they use it or how it's how it gets who it's going to, how it's used, et cetera. And wow, what an amazing organization to do both the data side and the patient advocacy side, seeing how impactful both sides are. Um, how important is data quality in this type of research? You know, we hear a lot about data quality in the news and, and the challenges that it come with having quality data. You know, uh, how important is, is it to, to this type of research? Yeah, well, thanks for bringing this up because this is really the unsexy part of data, mm -hmm. right? And, and, but uh, it is really critical. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad that it's starting to become, you know, more visible, you know, as, as you were describing. Um, you know, I talk about robust data and, you know, generating, you know, this critical robust data, but, the reality is, is that you can't really do a useful analysis. You can't have reliable insights, you know, if your data quality is poor. And this is even more problematic if you're not just thinking about a single data set, but you're starting to aggregate up data. And so, you know, I kind of think of it as like it just sort of becomes like this soup of data. And mm. at RareX, we invest very heavily in data curation and in mapping to data standards. So that allows us to have robust data, you know, from a structure standpoint, but then we also do manually, you know, uh, do have data quality processes on the data before we open it up for analysis. Uh, interestingly, you know, this is still really hard to get funding for. Wow. Um, and, and to think I, how critical it is for the, to the, for the research, for everything that it's needed for. Yeah. Um, wow. That's hard. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And it, I mean, it is so ironic because it's a necessary ingredient to getting out, you know, high quality results that then you can then depend on to, you know, build research programs on. I'm wondering what are specific ways data and technology can be used for uh, rare disease research in pharma and the life sciences in that particular area? In tech, we talk a lot about big data. And Kazi Mustak Hussein from Roche shared a really interesting concept with me that I think is really applicable to rare disease, which is meaningful data at scale. Mm. Yeah, so how can we get meaningful data, meaningful amounts of data to drive forward our understanding of rare diseases and, you know, therefore be able to accelerate therapy development and it come back, comes back to some of the themes that you know, we've already talked about around robust data accelerate, uh, excuse me, uh, accessible data, mm -hmm. federated data, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, their, and how RareX has been approaching this is, you know, actually we were started to, uh, to really address several key data challenges from a tech standpoint. And so first, is data silos. And this has been a traditional problem in research where data might have been generated in academia, 
in a specific group or it might have been generated in industry. And then because of the way that that data was you know, collected and managed, it's only available to that group. And you know, we've really seen how in cancer and even in COVID, how we've been able to break through you know, that paradigm and you know, to the benefit right, of, um, of being able to drive forward and accelerate you know, research and our ability to develop treatments. In rare disease, we have an additional challenge that there's actually very few patients within mm. any individual rare disease. So yep. you know, in, in my daughter's condition, there are about 1,500 patients known worldwide. So that seems really small, but then you know, as we get to even, you know, there's there's now 10,000 over 10,000 rare diseases. And, you know, so we're really getting to a, you know, numbers where there might only be one or, you know, 10 patients or, you know, 50 patients known worldwide. And so these silos of data, you know, can really create severe limitations on our ability to characterize and understand a specific patient population. So that's one of the key data challenges that we were, you know, um, started to address. And then, you know, second area is, is around lack of usable data. So, you know, studies, you know, may not have utilized data collection, which was based on standards. And so that can complicate analysis. So I'll just give you like a simple example that, you know, uh, for seizures, you know, using different definitions for um, for the types of seizures um, or not using standard definitions for types of seizures makes it very, very hard to then aggregate data up on you know, um, on seizures. Oh, that's um, so true. Because I'm sure there are so many different ways that you can describe what a seizure is, but it's it's a seizure <laughs> and and why and how and yes, yeah, so that could be right. really complicated. Yeah, and there are standard. There is standard nomenclature. Okay, it's there just is. That, you know, it, it's just that if groups are not utilizing it for their data mm-hmm. collection, then mm-hmm. it's really hard after the fact to map that to you know a standard nomenclature because there's interpretation right in the way that a question is asked <laughs> and you know of course then you know um uh mapping you know that that complicates analysis and then it creates that issue around the soup that we were you know talking about um and so we invest a lot in terms of utilizing utilizing standard measures and then also mapping to ontologies to facilitate the downstream research. That is and fantastic. Then, yeah, and then one other thing I wanted to mention because I t- touched on this a little bit before about numbers of patients, but one of the biggest challenges in rare disease is that often data does not exist because mm-hmm. we have this you know, tale of rare diseases where there are you know, very few patients or an, a disorder may have just really recently been identified. And so we have this challenge of not really having any robust information around what symptoms that this you know uh, patient uh, cohort might have. And so this is another area where you know, data and technology is really critical. Oh, wow. uh, Our understanding. Yeah, that is so wild to think about the fact because usually they probably aren't tracking the data too much until after they're diagnosed. And so maybe some of the things earlier on that are critical for research are missed. Is that kind of like something you're saying there? Yeah. So I have an example. (laughs) Thanks Mm -hmm. for bringing that up. I have an example from my daughter's disorder. So, you know, we've been, we were, 
extremely lucky that we had a 534 patient study published last December on her disorder. And and so, you know, this was huge in terms of our, you know, advancing, first of all, awareness around the disorder and also the fact that it was a multi-country, multi-center collaboration was also, you know, super meaningful, you know, Mm -hmm. going back to this point about like- It's a parent's, every rare parent's dream, you know, to have that happen. <laughs> yeah, Truly. exactly. Um, and this data was pulled from electronic medical records. And what was surprising about it was that it, you know, it basically cataloged symptomology and in the area of speech and or of communication, less than 40% of the patients were identified to have a communication issue. And Mm -hmm. we know from other information that, from other studies that um, STXBP1 patients, you know, by and large are nonverbal. You know, there are a few exception patients who have, you know, words, but you know, by and large, the the patient population is nonverbal. And the, you know, thinking about this, so initially I was super frustrated. Yeah. But thinking about this from what pro, you know happens in a medical encounter. You know, if a child is going into you know the ER or you know and or even just generally with a, a patient visit, they're always with their parent. You know, they're always with their caregiver. And so it's probably not noted in the medical record, even oh, that's though that's true because the parent is speaking for the child and the symptoms and the oh right, right. True. or you know, they're very mm-hmm. if they're coming into the ER, they're very, very concerned about, you know, if the child's having a seizure, you know, focusing on administration of rescue meds and you know, and and so it's a the the they're not asking you know every single question like does your child communicate verbally you know and so the so through being able to collect comprehensive data where you know what rarex does is it starts with a head to toe type of high level data collection and then if you um, say that you have any symptoms of a specific type it will then ask you more questions we're able to capture those types of, uh, you know, those types of symptoms, which may have not been identified previously. And and I think it's incredibly important for patient populations, you know, bringing together all of this data is important, but it's also incredibly important for patient populations because sometimes, you know, like this, this point about, about speech and communication has been well known Mm, within mm -hmm. within the patient community. And so, that's that's why you know it's not just medical record data but it's really data across all of these areas that really gives us that whole picture wow you really see how critical that true the role of the parent is to have that accurate data be in their child's medical records when their child is working through a rare disease and 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 also how critical it is the role they play in many ways as the one responsible for that um you know as well um are there other ways that parents of children with rare diseases can get involved with you and to help what rare x is doing yeah absolutely and maybe it's a good time for me to 
take a step back and, and talk about. So a couple of weeks ago, we announced that RareX is going to be merging with another organization called Global Genes. And I am extremely excited about this this uh, announced combination of the organizations. Our boards came together a few months ago and really started to think about you know, what the shared vision for the organization you know, would be, what would our, you know, added value of bringing together the organizations, uh, the why, and what a key re realization is um, that came out of these discussions was that we have, you know, being an advocate today be, is very, very different from 10 or 15 years ago. And, you know, there's multiple drivers for that. So, you know, we have diagnosis of more rare conditions becoming becoming more common because of these new techniques of genetic testing, you know, and we also have more advocates who are really jumping in in all aspects of advocacy, including, you know, really trying to, to jumpstart and de-risk research. Mm -hmm. and, and part of the reason why it's happening more now is that there's been these advances in therapies and there have been the early successes you know, of cystic fibrosis, of SMA and others where, you know, it's really driving forward, you know, the 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 followers, if you will, um, to be able to, you know, um, advance research to be able to start to to push those types of therapies together. And, you know, so that was the the, you know, real kind of key realization. And from that, this this um, joint vision and value proposition around being able to serve this next generation advocate has come out. And that's really the focus of our, our, uh, our merger. And so, you know, thinking about parents and caregivers of rare of children with rare disease, and, you know, I would even expand that to, you know, pay the patients themselves, you know, so that, you know, these are the folks who have you know, the most urgency, right? They, they are so highly motivated because of their direct personal situation and the urgency to really make an impact for themselves or their loved ones. And this, there's a, you know, continuum now of, you know, things that advocates might be doing, you know, from, you know, it, from raising awareness to building community to, you know, starting to um, fund research to, you know, actually driving research. You know, there's a, there's advocacy as well. You know, excuse me, there's legislative advocacy as well. Oh, and true, so, true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so you know, thinking about you know, what what parents and patients can do, there are so many things. But you know, I also realize that that can almost feel overwhelming mm -hmm. you know, um, initially. And so there are specific things that we talk about even in, you know, my, the foundation for my daughter's community around how people can start to get involved. And so it can be participate in a single research study, mm -hmm. you know, answer a survey, um, go to a clinic and participate in research. It can be start a fundraiser, and, you know, it doesn't have to be a fancy fundraiser. It can be a Facebook fundraiser. It can be, you know, one of, one of our, our the uh, Melissa Hioko, who runs development for STXBP1 Foundation, is always talking about how it can be what you love. You know, so if you, you know, if you really love 
golf, if you really love, um, you know, making quilts, yes. <laughs> whatever that is, those things can really be turned into, you know, ways to increase awareness. And they can also be, you know, turned into to, uh, to ways to, to raise funds. And so there really are so many ways to really get involved and start to move the dial. I love that. And congratulations on the merger too. I know that must be an exciting time for you all to kind of bring together the the data and the analytics side and the, you know, patient advocacy side and now the parents and caregiver side all all into one organization. It's truly fantastic. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm wondering in terms of the care side of things, you know, we have a lot of hospitals and the health system uh, listeners. Do you think physicians need to have better education on how to work with rare disease patients and caregivers? You know, what what do you feel like that would look like? Yes. And that's all I need to say. No. <laughs> no yes, exclamation point. <laughs> yeah, I so of course, you know, physicians typically are not trained, you know, on rare disease. Mm-hmm. It, there's, you know, there's a, 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 you know, much more of a focus on, um, you know, looking at and being able to diagnose common disease for, for obvious reasons, but rare disease is critically important. And as we're finding out, you know, 10% of the population is impacted by a rare disease and might go, you know, my daughter's, my daughter's diagnostic journey was three years and that's short. For a, yeah. for a diagnostic odyssey. And so really enabling us to more quickly diagnose patients, you know, so that they can get into the best care possible, even if, you know, there isn't, you know, already a documented standard of care or a therapy, you know, since less than 5% of rare diseases have an approved therapy, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we, we realize that there are, you know, limitations to, you know, what can happen from a therapy standpoint today, but that picture is really starting to change very quickly, you know, and, you know, even in my, you know, my daughter's situation where there is no therapy, there's no approved therapies right now beyond, you know, seizure medications. But the, the thing that is, was great for us is that we knew what the underlying cause was. And we knew that occupational therapy, speech therapy, physical therapy, and the ABA therapy that we're doing, the behavioral therapy that we started doing are the right things for her right now. And, and that that was extremely important. And, and so, it seems like physicians, it would really help for them to have an idea of what some of those pathways might look look like, like uh, physical therapy repurposing. We talk about drug repurposing and other repurposing, but it's almost like they need to figure out therapy repurpo- repurposing in many ways for helping some of these children. Is, is you know what is what do you think about that thought? Yeah, I well, so I I agree and really, you know, thinking about the, you know, what we can do for the whole patient, right? Mm. Because for in some cases, as we were just talking about, we don't have a curative path yet. And so, you know, what can we do to, you know, to optimize the outcome for the patients with the tools that we have today? You know, um, and I, I'll give you a, an example of Oh, you know, also because I think that what we really also need is expert networks and centers because 
there are you know over 10,000 rare diseases which means that it you know it's it's not enough to know rare diseases exist and even to know about a single rare disease and i think that it's it you know it's um really you know not reasonable for us to expect that physicians are going to be able to become experts in you know all of these thousands of rare diseases but you know i think by creating centers where there is expertise in a in a disease area um you know where it might be say neurodevelopmental disorders mm-hmm. you know, and and you know so as an example we rarex has been supporting a clinic in the in at Children's Colorado where they have a multidisciplinary neurodevelopmental uh, clinic that is supporting five different disorders and so we're providing technology support to enable them to capture data collect data for analysis and you know, through this they have a center that has expertise you know, that is able to serve, you know, families across a, you know, across a, a broader uh, geography, even if they're not doing, you know, the, the primary care provider, you know, so I think that that's an important model that families still will have a, you know, primary provider in their local geography, but this is an expert clinic, you know, and, um, you know, and also the creation of these, you know, expert networks where, you know, there are, experts in a particular um a particular disorder who you know um where we can really figure out how to make their knowledge much more uh much more accessible without you know without you know uh, um creating burnout Yes, truly. That is really fantastic. I love that model that you mentioned, and it does seem like it's a very practical, possible model for others to follow. So really Mm -hmm. interesting stuff there. I would love to move now from kind of the professional side to the personal side. You know, we have a lot of working women here that listen into the podcast, and we know you're a very busy professional in addition to the the caregiving uh, that you do do. Um, What are some things that you do on a personal level to really work your best and make a difference? One main thing is that I have really accepted that the concept of work-life balance doesn't really exist. And once I <laughs> once I accepted that, then it you know it really it made things a lot easier for me because I didn't feel that pressure to figure out how to make that perfect balance. And it you know it's not to say that it, it, and and it's. I think what philosophy that I've adopted is that you can't have necessarily have balance within a day and you might not have balance within a week or a month, but making sure that you do the things that are important, you know, including, you know, spending time with family and not feeling guilty that, you know, something else is not getting done has been incredibly important to me. Um, I also, you know, have, set up a you know kind of structured care system so mm-hmm. that um you know so that when i'm you know because this is i think a challenge for you know people who you know either have you know young children so i have an 11 year old and my stxer is nine and people who either have young children or you know they have a lot of caregiving responsibility you know b- being able to find a way and um where when you are needing to work that you have the mental space to work is very important. And I know that I'm lucky 
in that I've been able to create that, but that's also been you know very important to me to be able to uh, to um, have the professional life that I have. Yes, that truly is so terrific to have that set up for everybody to succeed and everybody to live in a peaceful um, home and situation because everyone's needs are covered in that case. So that's that's awesome. Um, are there any particular books or podcasts that really helped you on your personal and professional journey? I have spent most of my career in, well, I've, I've spent my career in tech and I've spent a lot of that career in startup organizations. And so definitely a lot of the books that Jeffrey Moore wrote and you know, more recently, the Lean Startup book um, from Eric Rice has you know, have really been very impactful for me. I, you know, I look, for, you know, I guess two things. I always, you know, even though I'm in a nonprofit now, we're building a product and we need to be looking at it in terms of things like product market fit, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and, and, you know, how are we delighting, you know, our, our users. And so uh, those, those I think are, you know, kind of fundamental concepts for me that, you know, have really driven a lot of, you know, my thinking and, you know, also the type of organization that, you know, we're, we're trying to build. So, um, so yes, that's, uh, I know your employees really appreciate that about you, that you're really diving into this. What is the best leadership structure? What is the best business models? What's, how are we going to make this startup really thrive? Because when your startup thrives, so does the rare disease community. So it's, it's really critical and important. Um, So to kind of finish off on, on these questions, what do you believe to be the future of digital innovation in rare disease research? research and treatment? There is a lot of talk now on real world evidence. And, you know, it's like a a meme or, you know, a a, a hot buzzword. And I think that there's still a lot around it about, you know, what does it really mean? And how is it going to actually drive forward uh, our ability to understand whether therapies are working, understand, you know, what the long term progression is for patients? Um, but I think that it is going to truly be a significant part of you know, the future because as we are able to look at longer trajectories of data and deeper trajectories of data where it's people living in the real world and we're collecting data in the real world, it is such an important complement to clinical trials and it enables us to really capture that long-term data. So as we as we move into the world of gene therapies, where our you know there, there's requirements for long-term follow-up after approval that are you know ten years, and so real-world data becomes very very important for us to understand the you know success and you know some of the con- potential concerns that might come out because of a gene therapy. And then I think about that not just in terms of a single type of real world data or real world evidence, but how do we bring together multiple data sources in a an efficient and high quality yes. <laughs> way, mm-hmm. you know, such that we're really creating the evidence that we need, you know, to um, at, to drive forward insight. So I am you know, very, there's a lot that needs to evolve in that area, but you know, I think that it's going to be a critical component of um, you know of uh, digital 
currency, um, you know, for rare disease. So interesting. It'll be very cool to come back in five years, 10 years and see, you know, where that, how far that has come. Because I've heard that a lot in the industry and I think people mm -hmm. are working on it like you and others to make that uh, impactful for uh, rare disease and more. So it's truly terrific. So to finish this conversation off, right, where can our listeners find you online? So definitely check out the RareX website and there will also be information on the RareX and Global Genes combination on both the RareX website and the Global Genes website. And please, uh, if you want to reach out to me directly, you can reach me on LinkedIn. That's terrific. Now, before I forget, did you happen to bring tea with you today? I did. I did. <laughs> oh, I love it. Stanford, is that where you went? <laughs> Yes, I went here for undergrad and we're actually having our reunion this weekend. So it's uh, it's timely. <laughs> oh, that is fantastic. I love to see it. And I today have my Once Upon a Gene mug. Uh, love it. Effie Parks is well known in the re uh, rare disease community and she sent me a mug and I love this mug and my kids do too. We got to always remember disability is diversity, right? <laughs> it's fantastic. I, I love that. And Effie's amazing. That's too good. Well, thank you so much, Charlene, for joining us today. Thank you, Grace. And thank you guys for joining us too. Check out the Hit Like a Girl website and YouTube page for more great guests like Charlene today. Cheers. Like a Girl Media is more than a media network. It's a community. We want to meet you and amplify your voice and the voices of outstanding women innovating in healthcare. Interested in starting your own podcast or hosting an event near you? Connect with us online or in person. We're here to support and empower you. 